the second case was with a domestic terrorist and they think I'm legit, but I'm not there yet. Final step was basically I had to get arrested. So I look at that mugshot and it's surreal because I'm looking at myself. I remember that person, but yet you know that person's not you. It's just a very odd and in some ways painful feeling. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. In this episode, I'm looking at what it's like to work deep undercover. How do detectives and agents develop and maintain another identity without getting caught, without getting killed? Joining me to talk about it is retired detective Matt Pitcher, who has more than 22 years of experience in law enforcement, specializing in deep undercover operations at both the federal and state levels. Matt started his career with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, known as CMPD, and later lateral to the Monroe County Sheriff's Office in Florida. While with CMPD, he started with street-level undercover, which developed into his two long-term deep undercover cases involving drug trafficking, organized crime, and terrorism. For his work on his second case, Matt received the Medal of Valor for risking his life to infiltrate a dangerous criminal network to expose their plans. In addition to his undercover work, Matt also handled numerous investigations, including homicide, rape, human trafficking, and even helping crack the case of a serial killer while with the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. In December 2022, a lung infection and resulting hospitalization led to Matt's having to medically retire from law enforcement. An experience I know from talking with other officers is very difficult. Okay, well, Matt, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Interesting story how we connected. We follow each other on Instagram. And there was a post you did recently that kind of blew my mind. And this is regarding deep undercover. So you've got one image of you. It looks like, you know, all clean shaven <laughs> at what, maybe a wedding? No, actually, it's a party. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then the next photo is of you looking pretty ragged. Yeah. And the, you said that you were, as part of the case, arrested. Yes, I uh, was actually. The actual charge was uh, resisting arrest of all charges. <laughs> it was such a visual shock. It, it just was like, it, it hit me. So clearly when you posted that, you were looking to get that kind of, make that kind of point. Absolutely. And it's funny because, so I'll look. And I've joked about this in the past where my undercover career apparently went the wrong way because the first long term my case, which was about two years long, I was got to be this billionaire playboy opening mm. up clubs. Yeah, perfect assignment. I mean, who can argue? Except for the fact that I had a wife and a newborn kid at home. Other than that, it was a perfect assignment. Oh my god. The second case was with a domestic terrorist and that's the exact opposite world. Yeah. basically spent my time living on the ground. I did have an apartment, a wholly different world. So I look at that mugshot, which is exactly what it is. And it's surreal because I'm looking at myself. I remember that person, but yet you know that person's not you. It's just a very odd and in some ways painful feeling. Mm. What do you mean by that? When I look at the picture, there are two people in that picture. And the one person is a stranger. When you go undercover and for this long and the only people you are around are basically the people you're targeting. You become that person, not fully, but half of your brain is that person, let's say. 
and then the other half is still you. Like you're still a cop, you're still a law-abiding citizen, still have the same morals, same beliefs, and in a sense there's <laughs> an internal struggle. And it's funny because every time I look at the picture, it's the same thing that I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I remember it, but it's almost like, is it a dream? Did it actually happen? Almost impossible to describe completely. I'm curious about the use of the word painful. Why, why painful? Part of it is immediately everything with that case comes back. The feelings, the fear, my family that I was missing. You have all the emotions that you had at that time. While you half of your brain is still you. You're not you at all. At any point, you don't get to be you. Mm -hmm. You don't get to. And I think that's part of it, too, is you don't get to do the things you enjoy, mm. the things you like, because it, it's it's basically a 24-7. Everything that brings you comfort is put on pause and not your life. And that that's painful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, it's hard to fathom and it's hard to imagine how you got through it. You literally have to live for each day. You can't look at the future and say, okay, I'll make it through this week and I'll see them next week. You can't look at that because you don't know if it's going to be next week that you get to see them. So you literally just got to focus on that day and put everything else out of your mind. I definitely want to talk about all of that. Before we get there, let me just get a little background on you. What year did you start with CMPD? Um, I started in 2000. Okay. So right before 9-11. Yeah. 9-11, I was off. I was living with an officer at the time. As soon as the second plane hit, everybody knew, oh, this is mm. this is on purpose. Something's wrong. I actually, about maybe 30 minutes later, got called and said, all right, get your uniform, get in here. And I was stationed at the in Charlotte at that time. It's not there now, but at the time, one of the high rises was the FBI building. And I was um. stationed out front of that. It just the whole experience was so surreal. And that lasted a couple of years. I know... Several houses I hit were related to terrorism. When I say houses I hit, search warrants that I helped on, mm. and some of the images and stuff you would see were, were crazy. Meaning? Uh, uh, just terrorist related, like anti very anti-US and mm. anti-lot of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this was the part of the undercover stuff? So no, this was actually before Patrol? that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, and this isn't good, and I'm glad tactics have changed. I can still remember I was with my FTL, and Vice and Narcotics had a search warrant, and they called up and like, hey, is anybody in the patrol? Uh, we're about ready to do a search warrant. And my FTL is like, oh, you need to go ahead and do this. And so they literally throw me in the van, and I'm the first one through the door because I'm in uniform hitting a house. Obviously, tactics have changed dramatically since then, but that's my that's how I remember my first search warrants. Guy hits the door at the ram. And I fly through and run straight to the kitchen where I fall through the floor. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> so they, like, this was a really crummy house and they had clogged their sink and it had filled over and this must've been months. And so when I ran, I hit the kitchen and the wood had just deteriorated. So oh. I went right through it. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. And so when you say, I mean, how is it supposed to be done? So now, <laughs> nine times out of 10, a lot of departments, first of all, it's going to be a SWAT warrant. SWAT team is going to come out and handle everything. And depending on how much drugs you're looking at or what kind of search warrant it is, you're just going to wait outside and call the person out. It's just too much risk. You know, we've had things go wrong on so many mm -hmm. search warrants when right. we yeah. go in dynamically. Right. 
lot of officers, deputies get killed doing search warrants. Yeah, exactly. So for perspective, CMPD is a fairly large department. It's how many sworn? Uh, approximately 2,000 sworn. So it's, it is definitely large. And you said when you started in patrol, you started in a really rough area. Tell me what that was like. So the area I started in, it was called David Three. When I started, it was just an extremely high crime area. We would lead by far in homicides, armed robberies, shootings in general. Not exaggerating. It would be close to every single night you would at least hear gunshots going off. And keep in mind, I'm there. I'm 22, 23 years old, and I'm able to get in foot chases almost everything every single night. So as a wow. young kid, it felt great. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't do it now. <laughs> and did it, did it feel dangerous? Yes and no. At the time... I was young and young and dumb <laughs> and still had some of that invincible feeling going on that I can handle anything. Looking back at it, I'm just lucky to be alive at this point. <laughs> some of the, like over my whole entire career, I'm very fortunate to be alive. I think yeah. in 2000, it was 2007, was probably an extreme wake up call for me. I was doing street level narcotics at this time. And Two of my friends from David Three, one night they uh, they were executed. Ooh! By somebody shot both of them in the back of the head, and that, like, I mean, I had been to a lot of police funerals before that. We had even lost another officer in Charlotte prior to that in a helicopter crash. This one was was definitely different. Not only with them being shot, but being close to them. Like the night before they were shot. Uh, Sean had asked me, you know, hey, can I can do a ride along with you? Like, can you teach me narcotic? And basically, was, absolutely, man, I can help you with all that. And then this happened next night. And I remember spending the whole night in the hospital watching. <laughs> Sorry, this is tough. Uh, watching both their wives show up. And they kept <sighs> them alive until their wives got there. But I think that was definitely one of those moments that kind of changes you forever. You don't nothing's the same right i'm sorry was this an ambush yeah they had been out with the kid earlier in the night because he was causing a disturbance and basically after they had gotten out with him they didn't arrest him anything like that but in that same area they got a domestic call as far as i know absolutely nothing to do with the disturbance but then they go to this domestic and they come out of the domestic and the kid's hiding behind a corner and comes out and Hits them both in the back of the head. Um, just one of the most cowardice, scumbag things you can do. They were squad mates? Yeah, so they were David Three. Like, basically, we're just one big family. Ugh. And just and great guys. Super, super great guys. And were you working? The no. I actually got the call and came running in. It's one of those ones you just don't believe it when it's happening. All right. It's an experience that doesn't, like I said, it doesn't go away. You don't get over it. It's, I think anybody involved in it that night feels like they're still living it sometimes. Yeah. Uh, was there any hope that they would make it? No. No. They literally just kept them alive. Um, they were unconscious, mm -hmm. but just so their wives could say goodbye to them. God. Um, tell me their names. Jeff Shelton and Sean Clark. Okay. Well, I will look them up on Officer Down Memorial page. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. 
Did the community react? So, and it's funny because I talked to my wife about it. Like, as an officer, you see things from one side and others. They put all of the David Three people were put on a bus for the funeral. The roads were lined up with people uh, holding signs, you know, we love you, that kind of thing. And she said, you know, like officers do, we were cutting up and kind of joking around, getting on the bus and that kind of thing, being cops. And the minute you saw the first line of people on the road, she said the bus was as silent as, as you could imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really sorry. I appreciate that. You know, as many of my listeners know, it was the ambush murders of five officers in the Seattle area in late 2009 that inspired me to start telling the stories of law enforcement to help people really understand the job and the person behind the badge and that you can't appreciate law enforcement and show your appreciation only when something bad happens. I know in talking with officers out here, so many of them had this survivor's guilt after these ambush murders, you know, those who were working wondered, could they have done something or those who weren't working, which they had been. I don't know if you experienced that. I'm guessing you felt the same way. Oh, absolutely. Part of it. So the kid that killed them, I had got, I'd been out with him a week prior. He was mm -hmm. a frequent flyer problem child. Hey, I mean, part of you wonders, did I do something at the time I was out? Like crazy thoughts run through your head. Um, part of it is you're trying to figure out why, you know, you're, you can't make sense of what was done. Yeah. And, you know, so many departments out there can relate to this kind of loss. You did reference uh, undercover street level. <laughs> and so th it was shortly after that then you, you, that you or you already were in undercover. That was one week after. So at that time, they can, when I talk about street level buys, that's buying um, a user amount of crack cocaine mostly is what I would deal with. Um, that was the area I worked. That was the biggest problem we had was crack cocaine. You know, at that time, you'd be going up to street corners and doing the buy right out, right out of your car uh, most of the time. Every once in a while, if we had a, a problem house that we were getting a lot of complaints about, I'd just walk up to the house and see if I could convince or talk my way into <laughs> getting a buy from them. <laughs> Jeez. How did it work? Did you get this interest in undercover street level and that built to deep undercover? Yeah. So basically, I mean, you have to, it's a learning process and so, and a proving process. So I kind of have to prove to the vice and narcotics unit that I know what I'm doing. Number one, I'm safe. I have good tactics and also I'm capable of doing the buys and able to talk to people and do what I need to do to, to close deals kind of thing. Even street level deals are for the most part, knock on wood, very easy, but they're also extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times those are the ones you get robbed on and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, golden rule with street level is the first three seconds are everything hmm. because if it's a robbery, they're just, if they come up, they're just going to shoot you in the head. If they're going to kill you, if you're alive after three mm. seconds, it means you can talk your way out of it. Wow. Um, <laughs> oh, but this is sort of a proving and a training ground to exactly. get into. Okay. Yep. And then how do you make the leap? So you put in, you have to interview, I want to say three or four months where you're training all over. You're with an FTO all over again. It's just like when you started on the road. You have this training officer who's teaching you the ropes, teaching you how not to get yourself killed. So this was for street level or for deep undercover? So this was still street level. So honestly, and the word deep cover is used 
a lot, but it's most cases when they say deep cover, it's not like the long-term deep cover cases I did. Okay. So tell me then what is long-term deep undercover? I realize you're making a distinction. Deep undercover, like long-term deep undercover is you take your personal life, you hit a pause button and you're this other person 24 seven. So regular undercover work, one of the first things you're taught is always keep it business. Like don't make a friendship, don't make anything personal, keep it business. That way when the case ends and the person goes to jail or whatever, the emotional attachment isn't there. It's just a business deal that didn't work out. I always refer to deep long-term undercover, exact opposite. Mm -hmm. You have to build that friendship and you have to really get them to like you if you want to succeed. And that's the part that makes it more dangerous, obviously, but it, it, there's no way around it. Especially in the beginning, you have to gain their trust and get them to like you so much from the get-go that they don't start checking into things. Because if they check into you right at the beginning, you're, you're done. You'll, you won't have everything set up properly and you're, you go down. <laughs> so the first deep undercover that I got into, it was totally by accident. Uh, long story short, I had I get in the vice and narcotics and I'm there for all of six months. I think it was probably eight months. I was doing buys. Everything was going great. I just some good stuff. One of the best cases, um, I worked at the gangster disciples gang mm. and they were trafficking young girls. And I had a confidential informant that was in on them. The leader of that gang, he go by psycho <laughs> and he lived up to that, to the T. My informant was getting us knowledge of the underage girls. She had given us information one night she was going to go back to the house. She had to be there basically because she was one of the girls that was being prostituted out. She performed sexual acts on them. And then the psycho, he wanted more sexual acts and she told him no. And he said, you never decline me. That's against the rules. And so he began to beat her, took her head and threw it through the wall and then threw her down the stairs. I didn't see her for a couple days. And then I get a call. She's like, hey, can we meet up? And this side of her head is shaved and she has staples going all through her head. She told me the story. That story with the underage girls, we get a search warrant for the house. We hit the house, find the underage girls, which is awesome. I get upstairs and I can see the hole in the wall with blood all over the top of the stairs. Like that image is, is clear to me right now is when I saw it. So he got charged with that. I believe it was when he was out on bail, another gang member from a different gang shot him and killed. And you were talking about this in the context of getting on your first deep undercover and go ahead. Yeah. So I, I did all that. And then I was playing football, blew out my ACL and I was laid up for about four months. In undercover world, four months is a huge problem. Mm. You know, anybody you're buying from four months, they're moving on for you. One, they may think you were in jail, which means, oh, he could be a snitch now. So they don't want to deal with that. And a lot of them, you're using informants to get to places and those informants have moved on. I get back wet and, you know, I'm scrounging, I'm scrapping. I got to find something. And right before I gotten hurt, I had an informant that introduced me to a stripper and I had just started to buy cocaine from her. So I just said, well, might as well give it a shot. Call her up and say, hey, do you remember me? I'm um, so so. Any chance I can get an eight ball, uh, which is an eight ball of cocaine? And she, yeah, no problem. She says, just meet me over in Ballantine. Now, Ballantine is like the nicest area of Charlotte, like extremely rich, wealthy area. And I'm like, what in the world? Why would a you know? I've never done a drug deal in Ballantine before. That's for sure. So I meet her over there, 
do the buy and everything about the buy is all wrong. You expect drug dealers, to, like there are certain rules all drug dealers go by. There's no trust at all when you're doing a, a drug buy. It just doesn't work like that. She had no care in the world. I sat in her car and I couldn't get out because she wouldn't stop talking. <laughs> like I'm sitting, you're sitting there with cocaine. Jeez. The last thing you want to do is sit and talk in that car. That's, oh. but she yeah. didn't care. And I tell her that this isn't really for me. This is just testing ground. I may want a lot more. And she's like, yeah, not a problem. Meanwhile, keep in mind that I know who her supplier is. He supplies all the clubs, a huge target. So that's kind of where I was thinking, I was like, if I can get to that guy, that would be awesome. I think we do one more very small buy like that, same situation. And then I say, hey, I'm thinking about an ounce or two. And she's like, yeah, what we call a yak, which is a conversation with the other person so that everybody knows what the other one is expecting. So we go to this restaurant. It is a nice, nice restaurant. Never done a yak at a nice restaurant. Usually Hooters or something like that is where you're doing a yak. <laughs> Keep in mind, every time we always do these stuff too, we always have close cover. That can watch us at all times for, for safety. So I'm sitting there, I see her car, and uh, all right, she's here. I'm mic'd up at the time. She gets out of the car, and she is wearing this extremely nice white dress. And I am now confused. <laughs> you definitely... Do not go to talk about drugs wearing a dress like this. Sure enough, she wanted it to be a date as well. Oh, no. <laughs> so I decided just to go ahead and have as much fun as I can. Never, ever do this in undercover work. This is a big time no-no in a lot of ways. And so I played at that point. Yeah, I'm a billionaire. My mindset at the time is, number one, this is going to be tanked after tonight because if she wants to date, I can't keep doing this. We're just going to end up having to arrest her, and that's going to be that. So I just decided to have a little fun. And say, yeah, I'm a billionaire, blah, blah, blah. That mistake paved the way for an unbelievable case. (laughs) Oh, my God. I figure out a way that I can keep this going and not create a problem. So I bring my sister, not really my sister, but who I claim to be my sister, now enters the picture so that she can be with me everywhere I go and vouch that, oh, yeah, no relationship happened. He was, Mm. you know, we end up getting up to two ounces and now make contact with the main drug dealer guy that I wanted. While this is happening, she takes both of us to a party and she goes, you know, you really gotta, you gotta meet this guy. Um, it's basically, you know, people we did recognize, we knew to be major level drug dealers. Um, everybody in here was somebody. I ended up meeting another gentleman who, I'm gonna call him the same thing I call my book, Marcos. I'm introduced as, this is Marcos, friend of the Greeks. And that's how everybody referred to him. That's very interesting, right? Something that you put in the back of your head. That night changed the whole course of the case. <laughs> I could tell by the way people were interacting with Marcos that he was considered somebody important. I could also tell Marcos had drugs. Young girls would come up to him and be all over him, and they followed him everywhere. And you'd see him once in a while, you know, come up to him, and then all of a sudden go to the bathroom. All right, mm. he's, he's slipping them cocaine. So all that put together is like, this could be a really good person to know. So now my, my attention shifts to both of these people, to Marcos and the other guy that's the big time drug dealer. And at this point, the stripper thinks we're dating. Uh, we've never been together, but she thinks I'm a billionaire and she wants that money. Like, oh. That's what made the whole case is because her mindset was uh, stay close to him and get that money. She's going around telling everybody we're dating, telling all her other stripper friends that I'm sleeping with her and that I'm off limits. Well, (laughs) in this case, that's beautiful because that's giving me instant credibility. 
Okay. Everything is working out in my favor. And she was extremely close to Marcos. At this point, about four nights a week, I'm out with Marcos. Three nights a week, I'm out with the drug dealer guy. So at this point, we've moved into deep undercover? Yeah. Where do you live? How do you pull off this billionaire persona? (laughs) But I also want to know, like, what's going on in your head? So first of all, I'm flying by the seat of my pants at this point. To be perfectly honest, there's nobody in the agency except for one person that had done a long-term deep undercover that had infiltrated completely. Nobody that had gotten to the point where they had to totally leave their other life. The closest was a good friend of mine who infiltrated an outlaw motorcycle gang. Mm. And he spent, but that was six months that he was with that one. So when how do you get to, this has gone from a street level to deep undercover. How do you, how do you adapt your life? How do you, what do you tell your wife? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a beautiful question. I can never say enough positive things about her. She had every reason in the world to kick me to the curb. You know, we had a newborn at this time and I'm basically on the spur of the moment coming home and saying, I'm just not going to be around. Um, (laughs) Now, the first case, at first, I didn't have another place to live because FBI wasn't involved, anything like that. Number one, I'm having to clean myself every time, which I'm not going to give a lot of stuff away, but that's just making sure you're not being followed kind of thing. But we go out all night. I don't get to come home till eight o'clock in the morning and my phone starts blowing up at 10 a.m., and I'm having to go back and meet up. So I was basically just wasn't around. I was with them all the time. Well, what kind of clothes do you wear? What kind of car do you drive? <laughs> so I had to play it again until I got FBI stuff because we, we don't have all the bells and whistles. But up until then, I literally drove, well, I was a Mazda 6, but I played that this is my worker's car. I don't, I don't live here. You know, I just come here sometimes and, and hang out type thing. I told them, yeah, I have a plane that's sitting in the small airport. I don't even know the name of the town up here. And then let them tell me the name. It's like, oh, yeah, that's it. Jeez. <laughs> that also gave me the option every once in a while to just quickly disappear. That, oh, hey, something comes up. I got a business thing I got to get to. My go-to was that I'm an orphan. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> a couple of reasons for that. One, it's very hard to get records. Obviously, that's all sealed information. So when they're trying to research me, if they do decide that, they're going to hit it at dead end. The second aspect of it. I'm an orphan with a trust fund. I invested the money and this mm. is how I made all this money. And then the, the common question is with my whole sister, how did that all come about? Well, we ended up meeting later. We were separated. So what, you go home at night and you, you think these things up or you draw like, did you, I mean, <laughs> this is like <laughs> fiction writing, you know, and then how do you keep it straight? So I wish I had been smart enough to write it all down ahead of time. You don't know how many times I finish and sit there at eight o'clock in the morning while I should be asleep writing stuff down because I made all this stuff up on the spur of the moment like an idiot. Oh. Yeah, at the beginning, I literally was flying by the seat of my pants. Nobody could give me direction. Like my sergeant was incredible. I had a tremendous sergeant. He guided me as much as he could. And he also was smart enough to realize that, wow, there's really, really something big here. And he was covering for me left and right. Our chief of police, he said, vice and narcotics is not allowed in the clubs anymore. Hmm. And so that was my stomping ground. Like I did great in the clubs, but then I fall into this case and it wasn't meant to be a club case, but I'm all over the clubs and that's where I'm spending all my times. And my sergeant is covering for me mm. the entire time, knowing that if this goes bad, he's fired. Like this is oh, going to cost him everything. Tell you, like, he took all kinds of chances. He even 
vouch for me to give all kinds of money out to this guy at one point. Nobody else would have ever done that. Where do you get the money? <laughs> it, from vice, like from our voucher fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are each month we get you know a set of money that mm-hmm. to use on mm-hmm. buys and that kind of thing. Okay. So you're in there by yourself. There's, are you wired the entire time? You can't. No. Right. So most of the time. One of the clubs that we would go to every single night was a, was a strip club. It was very obvious as to why we were going there. They just used the girls, and the girls would make sure I was not wired. Mm. <laughs> so you have to. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. How can you be with these folks who are doing drugs and not doing them yourself and keep your credibility? So each case was different. The first case was I was way too wealthy that there was no way I was going to get involved in that. Basically that I'll, I sell the product. I'm not using my own product. You know, I've got billions of dollars. You're not going to sit here and question me as to why I don't do drugs. Mm. I sell this. I'm, I'm above you kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that's how I did it in the first case. How did it end? How did you get out of there? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the first case, Marcus is from another country where the DEA had just gotten kicked out. And Marcus and I come up with a plan that we're going to move 50 kilos every other week using my plane from his country into Charlotte. Because he goes, you're going to open up two clubs in Charlotte. One is a nice club so that everybody sees a nice club. And one is going to be a shack, and that's where the cocaine's going. So DEA is beside themselves just as happy as can be because that's who I was kind of working a little bit with on this one. So we sit down, and we're sitting there drinking our wine. And he goes, all right. We're going to pay this person off. We're going to pay this person off. We're going to pay this one. We have to pay the Greeks for protection. And that's when everything just spun. I was like, oh, crap. I get out of the meeting, and that one is recorded or was recorded. It's gone now. Meet with my sergeant and DEA and ATF. And basically everybody is like, yeah, you're going to the FBI. This is a corruption case now. Mm. You know, They take priority or they have full reign. I'm disappeared. I'm outside of my family. Everything's changed now. <laughs> and the whole objective, once the FBI is involved, is they're going to have me introduce somebody that is my money man and that he's going to be the one in charge of giving out the money for these clubs and that basically I'm going to have some other stuff elsewhere that I'm going to have to attend to and he's going to take over. It takes a while to find someone to play that role. And then it took a while for to get everybody to trust that person. Mm. It, that was a frustrating part for me. But and the, the UC was very, very good. Nothing against him. Eventually, I get it to where they're just dealing with him, and I can slip out. I actually go to the what's called the DEA task force. I get sworn in as a DEA agent, also, so I'm, I get to play both rules. It's kind of nice. And meanwhile, keep in mind the case is still going on, like, but it's just completely the FBI. And then I'm with the DEA task force, and it was not long at all. A friend of mine basically asked me, hey, we have DNC coming in 2012, and, and this is sometime 2011. We have reports that there's going to be a bombing. Can you see about infiltrating and just hear what you can hear? They gave me a couple of the groups that they thought would be a way to get introduced in. This is your second under? This is now going into my second. Okay. So did you get a break in between? A very small one. Very, very okay. small one. <laughs> okay. Okay. So how did the, the, the drug one? The-, the drug one, it goes on for 
while I'm doing this other case, that one's okay. still going on. Okay. And without you. It doesn't yeah, it doesn't actually end until 2014. Okay, okay. Go ahead. You were saying So I get asked to see if I could infiltrate and just more to be ears, see if there's any truth to this. And they were environmental organizations that I was looking at. Like because I knew nothing about them, to be honest. And I didn't know the mindset or the belief system to see exactly what they believed and what's their personality. And this is where I believe a lot of undercovers, unfortunately, fail. The common myth, in my opinion, is that you have to be an extrovert to be an undercover. The biggest thing as an undercover is just listening. And I mean, completely listening. That's how you're going to learn how to get that person to draw them in and like you. And it's also going to keep you alive. Like That's how you're going to tell that something's askew. <laughs> I go to this first meeting, sit in the corner, and I don't say a word to anybody. Exact opposite of what you're supposed to do. Mm. And as soon as the meeting's over, I rush out just as fast as I can to avoid talking to anybody. A couple of days later, I go to another meeting, sit there, and this time they catch me at the door trying to get out. And it's actually the leader of this one network. And he says, Hey, I saw you at the last meeting. Ask me, you know, what got you to come, that kind of thing. And so start to build that persona a little bit. And again, I use the same, same exact story that I used before as being an orphan and that kind of thing. I don't go with a major trust fund. Basically, I said, you know, I had enough that got out of school and I bought a sailboat and I've been living on a sailboat. And you make all this up on your own. Nobody yeah. tells you what to say. No, yeah. This one, <laughs> at least I was a little bit smarter this time. And ahead of time, I created my mm. background, what mm. I was going mm. to be like. And I also learned. So the first case, I used a name that is nothing like Matt Pitcher. Mm -hmm. Totally different name. So every time I was out, I had to remember that name. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, exactly. And that, like, and I did use a name that different elements meant something to me. So they would at least catch my ear. Oh my but gosh. I, I learned after that first case. In the second case, I used a name almost identical to mine, Matt Pence. So even when I signed something, I could sign my real name and you'd know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. One, my handwriting is horrible. So that does help <laughs> a little bit too. And what's your appearance at this point? Scruffy and. Yeah, like I, I mean, you saw the the Instagram post, yeah. you know, clean shaven on the first one, earrings and short hair. Mm -hmm. Second case, I actually ditched the earrings mm -hmm. and long hair and a beard. Okay. So this guy at the meeting, he targets you because is he suspicious or he wants to see if he can use you? Both. Mm -hmm. It's odd. So that first case involved the Greeks, the Italians, and even the Russians. And they were definitely cautious they did background checks on me and everything like that well how can um, they, they do a background check on you they did it you? way too late luckily for me they didn't do it till the fbi was involved and at that point i was clean without going too much into tactics they okay. can create a background for me oh, oh okay <laughs> <laughs> she's wheeze okay yeah but that was so the key thing in that that was over a year into the case well over a year before they did that mm. I always say, if they follow the rules, both these groups, if they follow the rules, it doesn't happen. You have to be able to charm them so much that they just, eh, who cares? He's fine. Okay. And um, let's say they had done the background check and they found out you were a cop. In the first one? Either one. Either one, I, de I was dead. If they I found was going to say, cop. aren't you dead? Yeah. yeah. So, and I didn't go into this. Dear like, God. Oh, my God. In the first case... I thought I was, well, multiple times I thought I was dead. One, literally, first case, I'm at a club. 
off-duty officer comes up, starts grabbing me. Matt, Matt. Oh, no. Oh, oh yeah. No. And he didn't take the hint. So I'm with my drug dealer buddy is right next to me. Oh, my uh, God. And I turn and say, who? He goes, Matt, you work for CMPD. Oh, my like, God. There's not taking the hint at all. And I said, I don't know who you think I am. And at that point, my drug dealer buddy interrupted and said, dude, you need to go. It's not who you think it is. Literally saves my butt. So another time in that case that I thought I was dead, and this is actually when I knew that I had made it at the same time, Marcos, Marcos is a pretty heavy drinker, definitely an alcoholic, calls me up one night and says, hey, come pick me up. We're going out. And we go to one of the clubs, which we went to a lot. We go in, we sit where we want to sit at the bar, do our thing, pretty much like we own the club. This time we get there and the hostess, Brittany, she says, oh, good, you guys are here. I have your seats ready for you. So the red flag starts going off immediately because that's never how this works. She takes us to the far end of the bar where I know right behind us is a room that's only covered with like a just like a curtain type thing. But behind there, they have all the cameras where they can watch and hear everything. And I knew someone was in there. Meanwhile, keep in mind this whole time, Marcos is getting phone calls and text messages and where he normally is open and lets me see, he'll have it right in front of me where I can look at the text message, um, listen to the phone call. He will walk away from me or make sure I can't see the text message. So I know something is not as it should be. And he's not drinking at all. And he goes, come on, we're going to another club. And he's also, he's also usually very chipper, very talkative. And he's hardly saying anything. I think the only conversation he says, where are you from again? Mm-mm. And he goes, hold on, I'm getting a call and walks away from me. And he comes back and he says, never mind, we're going to my place. We'll have, we'll have some wine there. Uh-uh. And like I said, I had been to Marco's place a thousand one times. He always has all the lights on. They never, ever come off with him. And all the doors are always open, just the way he is. We get there. It's completely dark. <laughs> and he doesn't immediately turn the lights on, which at the time scared the crap out of me. And he goes, go ahead and just uh, go to the living room, which is straight ahead right past the living room is a balcony. I go straight to the balcony because I was convinced I was going off of the balcony. I just want to see where I was going. On the bright side, I looked down and about 10 stories, there was a pool. But well, you never know. Maybe there's a chance. (laughs) Oh my God. I go back in, have a seat on the couch. He's got a bottle of wine. We each have a glass and he interrogates me till six o'clock in the morning. Asking me a lot of my bank accounts, what I own, what my investments are, my name, my date of birth, everything over and over and over. And a couple times in there, he would go to his bedroom and only open the door enough for him to get through and then shut it right behind him to where I knew there were people in that room. And then he would come back out. And then uh, six o'clock in the morning, he just says, all right, I'll hit you up later. So what happened? I mean, he believed you? So at that time, I didn't know. I drive away saying, I don't know how this is, this is going to end. I think you run at that point. Terrified. <laughs> we got to the minute we got to his condo and it's blacked out. I thought, you know, if I, if I want to live, like if I think this is bad, this is the only shot I got is right here. I've got to make a run for it because I'm not that smart. I went ahead and went in, Ugh. but get my car and I actually, I don't go anywhere. I just go to a place where I can park and put the seat back get a call about two hours later and says, Hey, come on, let's get up. I got some good news. And we meet up and he goes, you passed. You're good. And so basically that was, he had vouched for me. Obviously from the beginning, he vouched for me from the Greeks 
and I had passed the test to move on with them. Oh. Uh, oh. That was probably the most stressful night of my whole entire life. Oh my god! Oh my gosh! I don't know how you how you got through that interrogation. <laughs> I would say God. <laughs> I mean, that's I crazy. Know. Yeah. Okay, so we were starting to get into the second deep undercover case. You've set it up already. You're going to these meetings of these environmental groups to see if there is any terrorist activity, to see if there's any chatter about a bomb at the DNC, if it's real, right? Yep. And that guy stops you. So he takes me aside and we get to talk and we, we form a bond quickly. And this part's luck in a lot of ways. He says, I, you know, a guy that's going to be here real soon is a great guy. I think you guys are going to hit it off. You know, he's a big time activist, just a really great guy. He also invited me out to go to dinner that night. I mean, he takes a huge liking to me, basically. So he introduced me to who I, in the book I call Billy. Extremely charismatic. Keep in mind, Billy, life of the party, everywhere he goes, has a following. As a cop, you pick up quickly, there is a major dark side in here. I had that gut feeling. Billy is the one I want to get close to. And Billy is very untrusting. Unfortunately, Billy also likes to do cocaine. And when Billy does cocaine, that's where he's she's completely unpredictable. So, and what is this group's mission? What? And like, I didn't say some of the group's names just because okay. I don't want to give them a bad name. Because some of them, for the most part, have good intentions, right? I mean, obviously, I hope we all care about the environment. And... They're just very passionate about it. Unfortunately, the the mainstream groups are where the underground starts. People are found in the mainstream groups to be part of the underground. And the underground are the people that you don't talk about, but they're there to do very violent things. From assassinations to bombings, they have taken the model of Al-Qaeda, where you use small groups of cells to go do these things and separate everybody else so that nobody knows who anybody is kind of thing. I remember the first time I go to Billy's farm, I go to Billy's room, and I am unbelievably surprised I didn't have a visual reaction. So I mm -hmm. go in the room, and the wall, you can't see the wall. It's only pictures, and it's pictures of drawn pictures that he drew of cops getting killed. Oh my God. Um, pictures of protests where cops are getting beaten. His hatred for police is unbelievable. So you walk in this room. How do you control your reaction? You said. I didn't say anything at first. Like, I think I said something stupid, probably like, oh, wow, you got a lot of pictures, you know? And I'm sure he was looking at my face because I know he had of want to see. I mean, obviously it wasn't horrific to him. Yeah. I, I'll never forget the feeling. The feel, like, You know, yeah. it, that thing where you drops to your stomach the whole what in the world what have i walked into kind of thing after that billy and i do get closer we're basically together all the time i'm either sleeping at his house i have an apartment at this point where i slept some I had a living room and a bedroom and i would sleep i have all my stuff in the bedroom of course but i would sleep in the living room directly underneath the window because i figured if someone ever shoots that's the one spot that's not going to get hit most likely <laughs> and you can't be armed. Was able not for, no like when I'm out no at the apartment I did have a place where I was able to hide a gun mm. that I was comfortable putting it that nobody would find it. And uh, and this this K 
character you're playing wouldn't be someone who would have a gun. So no, which was a mistake. (laughs) 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 So Billy did not believe we shouldn't have guns. Billy was very much a gun advocate Ah. and had plenty of guns himself. Was not happy that I didn't know how to use a gun. So he thought it was his personal mission to make sure I knew how to shoot, which means... So then you had to pretend not to know how to shoot. Well, yeah. Unfortunately, that and the range that we went to was on his farm, far away from everybody and anything. And I was the one who had to put up targets and stuff while Billy's behind me with a gun. And that was multiple occasions. That was just an awful feel. Like, that's that's another one where... People look at it and say, well, why didn't you run? Why didn't you do this? What, I run and he's going to shoot me while I'm running away? That's that's great. Well, I'm already in the mix. I'll play it out till the end. Like, yes, I could have maybe tried to grab a gun and shoot him, but then that's a kind of a sticky situation all the way around. So I just had to hope that he seemed to like me and we're on solid ground that day. <laughs> so how does this one play out? I mean, it's like this is a TV show and <laughs> what's... So... This goes for months. I am now at the point where, all right, they think I'm legit, but I'm not there yet. I need, final step was basically I had to get arrested. And we had a Bank of America stockholders meeting that was happening in Charlotte and a huge protest. And it was, it was huge, was planned for this stockholders meeting. This group was planning a protest. Yes. And they brought in, this is where these groups will coordinate and they all come together. So every group Mm. brings people in from all over the United States. Actually, the majority of the people were from other places, not Charlotte. These groups will have will have arrest teams, and those people are the ones that are going to get arrested mm. just to bring publicity to the cause. And so basically it's whatever it takes for you to get arrested is what you're going to do. We'll start little. If that doesn't get you arrested, we're going to go bigger and bigger. During this time, I have extremely limited contact with my handlers, and those are the people – the officers that are in charge keep me safe and keep me grounded. And and so basically it's text messages, hey, I need to be arrested. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, okay. And they, and they did a beautiful job of happening because nobody could know on the outside. You can't trust anybody. All it takes is one slip of the mouth or anything, and I'm, and I'm dead. The operations supervisor type thing over this whole thing, or intelligence supervisor, directly to the chief and then to the sheriff in the jail – to change the computer system to make sure nothing happens there where I come back to my actual self. And those are the only people that know. (laughs) And two officers who were in charge of actually arresting me. Wow. I get the plans of what's going to happen the night before. You know, 6 a.m., we're taking one of the major streets in Charlotte, and we're going to take it over. And I'm going to be in the lead, me and and the other arrestees. And then the rest of us are going to carry on. I'm like, that is perfect. Like I thought it was a dumb idea by the protesters, but I'm all for it because media crews aren't going to be out that early. So pass it on to my handler through a text message. And she goes, perfect. You're going to get arrested then. Morning comes around and we roll out and we get to that street. We take it. Bike officers swoop in and block us. And I'm like, perfect. You know, <laughs> as perfect as getting arrested can be. <laughs> They're in front of us for about 10 to 15 minutes. I'm like, man, they are taking a long time to arrest us. And then all of a sudden the bike officers peel off. And give us a street. And at this point, I am to say furious is an understatement. This is worst case scenario for me. You know, in my head, I'm saying I explained to them that I have to get arrested. They're going to have me do something else today to get arrested. Now I don't know what that is, and it could be really bad. Mm. 
So I'm not in a good place. We get to the Bank of America. And of course, they have it barricaded off so that we can't get to the door. The person that's in charge of telling us how we're going to get arrested brings us all together. Said, all right, you guys are jumping the barricade and bum rushing to get inside Bank of America. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. The two officers that were supposed to arrest me, at one point, I see them at one location. And I was like, all right, I can head towards that, get arrested there, trying to jump the barricade. And then there was another spot where there was an opening. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought about it, I was like, well, that, you know, I could just take the opening and then they would be able to cut me off and it'd be a, a lot better. This is the worst thing. I, I don't know what my thought process was. Apparently it derailed somewhere in there. So I went for the opening. I get three quarters of the way across this barricade and this young officer who was clearly working out a lot <laughs> and in very good shape did not appreciate me trying to get across the barricade close to him of course he had no idea who i am nor should he oh really uh, yeah so he grabs me and does exactly what he should do and he just slams me into the barricade just to pinch me because most people if they have weapons or anything like that they always have it in their waistband so you want to separate that waistband from their hands and all that so he did everything and I have no complaints other than I'm an idiot for jumping where I jumped. They, they charged me with resisting arrest, which it does. It's so funny because it looks like I kicked the one officer, which I did not. <laughs> but when he grabbed me and my one foot flies up, it does. It hits another officer, <laughs> which was good for me. The resisting arrest was better to get charged with for what I was trying to accomplish anyway. The two officers that were supposed to arrest me come over and say, hey, we got this. We're going to take him to the van. Of course, I can't talk to him or anything like that because there's way too many people. The van's not ready, and I get put on the side. I'm the first one to be arrested. CNN is right there, along with every other news channel, just flashing my picture, asking me questions. Oh, no. Um, everything I did not want. Billy comes up and is beside me, and, of course, he's using the opportunity to speak. I get thrown in the van, taken to jail. The guy doing my mugshot and says, hey, you're all over CNN. Well, my kid's in daycare right now. Oh. Obviously, there are people in Charlotte who know who I really am. And so I'm in jail for, what, 12 hours or whatever it is. And all I can think about is what am I coming out to? Like, I had no idea. I didn't know was SWAT team going to be there to take me away. And it was going to be a whole new life altogether. You know, were my wife and kid okay? Like, every horrible thought is going through your head. It was just the longest time of my entire life. And eventually the one group actually paid my bail. As a cop, what's it like to be in jail? You know, the bologna sandwich is not nearly as bad as they say it is. <laughs> but you knew you knew somebody was going to get you out. Yes. I mean, I knew one way or another I was getting out of there. I didn't okay. know when. Like, worst case scenario was that it's my own people bailing me out because that means the case is over. Um, my hope was I get out and we find a way to, that I go home immediately. I, not, I was hurting. I, I really was. I, emotionally, I don't think I was doing very well. My wife's. Some of the stuff she said to me that really kept me going more than anything else. And that was just, if you leave, are you going to be able to live with yourself if something happens and there is a bombing or anything like that? Are you going to be okay? And obviously, no. I agreed <laughs> every time she would say it. And what was it that you were worried they were going to do? What was the illegal activity? As it turned out, it was jumping the barricades. But it could have been everything from picking a fight to it with a cop. I would have known ahead of time in this case if it was going to be something like a bombing. And plus this was an initiation. So I knew they wouldn't take it too far because mm. they still can't trust me that much, you know? So I, I, now I'm vouched for, I get arrested. I go back to the compound where there's probably about a hundred people and get a standing ovation and applause and all that. 
super happy with my job. So I'm in good shape. About a month later, Billy introduced me to some other people. And then Billy kind of takes a back seat. And these other people he introduced me to, we start hanging out a lot. And then they talk about wanting to do a bombing at DNC. Granted, they, I know they had already had this in mind. Tell them that I think I could get us a storage unit to put the supplies in. They like it. It's at a good location. This is right as DNC is starting to kick off and nobody can get free from the police. Like basically everywhere anybody goes, we're able to have, I'm able to tell them, hey, you're going to have something happen here and they block it off. Basically they're on the way down with the supplies. They're told to call it off that we're not going to be able to do the bombing. And so is it, you had posted another picture on Instagram about... They were burning the flag because they thought. So that's that's a few days right before the vehicle was supposed to be here. It was actually a U-Haul truck that was coming down. And so in celebration of this, they get a U.S. flag and crumble it up, but then light it on fire. And then everybody went around flipping the flag off and talking about what they hate about America. It was beyond disturbing. It's again, one of those times where you're just infuriated. It's like there's this one part of you that's infuriated. But then there's this whole other being that knows that they have got to stay the course. You were able to prevent this bombing by making sure the police knew their every move. Basically, they have been reporting up to them that it is very police heavy. And that's how the decision is made that the vehicle turns around. We even talked about the same night we burned the flag was, holy cow, there are police everywhere we're moving. And we even said that somebody has got to be watching us or somebody has to be a cop. Oh, boy. And giving everything away. Was that you? Luckily, <laughs> no. I I was actually above suspicion at this point. Okay. So, we, I mean, we sat there and tried to guess who it was. They did guess somebody else that was on the outside that was actually a cop. Oh, no. <laughs> they couldn't know for sure kind of thing. Okay, so if I could digress for just a moment. Hearing you describe this... It reminds me of the BLM protests, and I was told by officers that a large percentage of the people were not in BLM and weren't from here. Like everybody is shipped in from outside. There is a funding source that pays for buses and everything for people to come to these. At all these protests, no matter where it's at, when you had the protest in Ferguson, mm. the protesters are brought from the outside. Almost nobody is from the town that is for the people out of town because it's all the underground for the most part and it's get them in and then get them out that was exactly the way it was in charlotte for both the shareholders meeting and dnc you know as i think about it now i remember that during 2020 officers saying that you know the goal was that people were getting arrested so they could either claim excessive use of force and then all these claims would have to be investigated or they would get arrested so they, the protesters, could physically harm the officers. So, you know, that was some of what was going on. But overall, with riots and protests like the one in your case, I mean, what what is the goal? Chaos. And a perfect example of that is when I was part of them during DNC. Make sense of this. I was an environmental anarchist. I was hanging out with communists. Nonstop. I can't think of a single thing that an anarchist and a communist have in common. One is complete government control and one's, one's absolutely no form of government at all. But the whole goal for both parties was to create chaos and disturb. And what is the purpose of chaos? In their mind, it's to disrupt the government and try to overthrow the government in a small sense and that it can lead to a much bigger picture. And fear. Actually, fear is also very much a part of it. 
Wow. Well, thank you for that insight. Bringing it back to your case, you stopped the bombing. And so was this the end of your, Basically, how do you get out of this? <laughs> I, so this is my favorite one of how I got out. This is the most ingenious idea that I've ever heard. And I, I really did. I loved it. And it was yours? <laughs> no, of course not. I'm not that smart. <laughs> they took a couple pictures of me and they put it on a wanted poster. And it was for terrorism acts in the Chesapeake Bay. Who then? And they went the FBI and okay. CMPD. Okay. Uh, and they went around and passed it to everybody asking, have you seen him? Where is he? It was within minutes of them starting to pass him out that I get a call from Billy. And Billy's like, I love you, man. But Actually, he left a message because I didn't pick up. Uh, he's like, I love you so much. You're a great guy. It's time to head back to the boat and go sailing. I'll see you when I see you. Love you, man. And then oh other God. people called and said, hey, you need to go ahead and get out. And hit. Yeah. So that oh my was my my exit and it worked beautifully Holy um, shit. it was weird because it's so for about the last month and a half of the case i didn't shower everybody else uh, i was with did not shower and i could smell and I, was, I finally got tired of it i get to the house and it was basically ready to stay away from me i'm going straight to the shower and i wanted to shave i think i was in the shower for no less than an hour and part of it was it's it's not easy when you go back mm. You know, I always wanted to do a deep cover. And then I did the first deep cover. And I said, I will never do this again. Of course, I turned around and did the second one. You don't realize, like, so you go into this case when it's a long, like a long-term one like that, and you hit pause on your real life. Like, for you, everything stops. Well, mentally, you're thinking, well, that means everybody else's life stops too. And obviously, that's not really the case. Everybody else's life moves on. And, you know, especially in the second case, my mom had gotten cancer. And and I did know she got cancer, but I couldn't get permission to go see her. Um, oh it was too risky. And so Retta handled everything. On first case, we have this young kid. Every time she, you know, she'll tell me a story about him being sick. And it's something I had no idea about. That That's really hard. Even when you're out of the cases, that's something you struggle with. Just because you're not there for your family. Like you put your family, you said, I'll see you when I see you. Mm. Second case ends. I go home. I'm now assigned to the DEA task force again, slash HIDA, which is high intensity drug traffic area. It just means they get more money. Uh, <laughs> that's the short of it. I'm there and July, August of 2014, I'm with my GS, which is general supervisor at the DEA. And we're in his office and he says, hey, does this have anything to do with you? And it's the mayor being arrested. And I, I did, I knew immediately, yeah, that was my case. The first case. Get a call a little while later from the FBI, and they're like, "Hey, mayor went down. You know, we told your chief this was all you. What a great job you did." I was puzzled. They were told, like my sergeant and I met with them when I was leaving that case. We told them that you know, unless it's for trial, which if it's trial, then I understand I have to do what I have to do. But if it less is for trial, no one is to know I had any involvement in this case. This would really put me in a bad spot. So as you can imagine, I was confused to find out that they had just said all that to my chief, who my chief was also extremely good friends with the mayor. Oh boy. I can say the very next day I come to work and was called to go do a P test. And then multiple times after that, I was called to do a P test. I did have a close friend of mine who was pretty high up in the department saying, I may want to think about leaving. I took that seriously. At that point, talked to my wife, 
and at the same time found the place where I live now. And very, very quickly, it is miraculous how quickly we sold our house, found a house, which finding a house down here is next to impossible and do all this in like a two week period and be gone. So let me just, I mean, I'm in, I'm, I'm in shock here. So you're, <laughs> you're saying that someone with the FBI basically blew your cover to your boss and he then had it in for you because he, the chief was friends with the mayor. So that's what you meant when you said this was going to the FBI at this point, because what started as a drug case became organized crime and political corruption. Yeah, that's very accurate. Calling in for a P test, meaning are you doing drugs? Looking yeah. for a way to fire you. Yep. And then you were told if he can't fire you. That would be best for me, like for my own well-being, that they weren't sure what would what measures would be taken. Dear God, this is this is like a movie. I mean, I that's insane. Yeah, it and wasn't, how how could people know that about that chief and not arrest him? I did not say anything at the time. At that same time, too, all of a sudden, the terrorists that I infiltrated were given they were not given my real name, but they were informed that Matt Pence was an undercover agent. Oh no! Oh yeah. By the chief? By somebody in the agency. I know that. But wow. I, I cannot say for certain who gave me up. Holy shit. They posted on Facebook. They said, if Matt Pence is not a real person, then we could kill him, right? Because it's not really killing somebody because that person doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I feel like they weren't happy with me at the time. I don't the who? <laughs> well, the a whole bunch of people at that point. <laughs> oh my god! I will say because there is one thing I hadn't talked about that means the world to me. My supervisor during the second case, when it was all over, she wrote up for me to get the Medal of Valor for what I did, and what she wrote was insane. One of those things brought me to tears at the time, pretty much, because that's the only thing that really kept me through my last part of my career. Like it was one person that recognized what you did kind of thing. Like that, that's, that's what made it so incredible. I can't fathom this. I can't fathom <laughs> a chief doing this to his own guy. Yeah. And I, I was told <laughs> just because I don't want to get in trouble. I was told that it, that it, he wasn't doing it to me, that I really was randomly selected a few times right after this. I the will P say, yeah, I will say I was with the PD for just about 15 years. Prior to this, I had never been randomly selected once. So you, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was just randomly selected. But that in between what somebody told me sure makes me think differently. Oh. So how does that <laughs> color, I mean, all you did, risking your life, not just in these two cases, but on the street as a patrol officer, you commit all of that. You don't see your family for two years? Well, yeah, Ish. when that all said, done. Three years. Yeah. Right. Were you able to talk to your wife, to see your wife? I mean, how did she handle it? So first case, some. Not a great deal, but some. Second case was next to none. One of the very few conversations we had. I've, I've, I've been very fortunate. I have a very good kid. He's at daycare and he says, I miss my daddy. And my wife wrestled with whether she was going to tell me or not. I was literally driving to a meeting with one of the environmental groups. She's like, hey, I've gone back and forth. I'm going to tell you. Just know when you do see him again, 
where his mindset may be. Of course, I pulled over to the side of the road and bawled my eyes out for a minute where you're sitting there, I'm done, I'm done, I'm going home, I'm going home, this is it, it's not worth it, I, I quit. And then remembering some of the things she had told me about, you know, could you live with yourself at the end, calm myself down, and then moved on and back to the meeting. Oof. And so that, and this is what you, this is how that ends? Yeah, pretty much. But I will say, and I think almost every cop will tell you this, is you don't do it for upper management. You do it for yeah. your fellow brothers and sisters, and you do it for the community. I yeah. mean, yeah. if you're a good cop, those are the reasons you do it, to be quite honest. Right. You just play by the rules for the upper management. <laughs> Everything about this blows me away. I do want to go back to, so you were able to move quickly to Florida and basically, you know, escaped with your life. Yeah. And then you did join the Monroe County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> Which, so, and I'm glad I did. And I, and I got to do some good while I was down as a deputy down here. Don't like, and I'd even thought about it before I came down here. You know what? I'm not going to go back into law enforcement. I even thought maybe I'll just 10 bar. Um, um, what is something that doesn't have any stress that, you know, everybody likes the person. And then I got down here and I was in a month like, man, I can't believe I'm not a cop that quick. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Well, I can understand it. I mean, when it's that much a part of your identity and you love what you do, we won't go into all the cases you did there, but you did do, you're a major crime detective. You did homicide, rape human trafficking, missing kids. But I do want to touch on that one case. Charlie Bear, as I call him. He's a serial killer. I mean, actually, we only know two people he killed. One was when he was young, and then there was the one that I worked. But there are many factors in it that say, oh, yeah, he's got to be a serial killer. This is one of the most unusual cases that I've worked. What happens is somebody finds a woman's body off of a dirt road. Very clear it's a homicide at this point, I wasn't even technically in homicide or in major crimes. I was transitioning out to go back to narcotics. And they asked me if I'd come help. First thing, see the body and she's completely naked, face up, definite signs that she was killed. Walking the trail, you can see where some smaller trees were freshly broken. And then right next to him is a part of a fender. Mm. Another guy in Vice happens to be this car guru, the captain sends him the picture of this car part, which I thought was the dumbest thing in the world because I'm that dumb. <laughs> I, it's totally on me. I go out and I actually go to some of the local bars trying to identify who she is. And also, hey, have you seen this girl with anybody? While I'm doing that, this other detective comes back with a picture of a van and says, this is the vehicle you're looking for. All from that little piece of the bumper that was off. It couldn't have been 30 minutes later that I'm being called, hey, come to the Kmart parking lot. We found the van. Wow. I'm in a UC vehicle, which is just an unmarked vehicle. So I get over, sit up, and we wait for a marked uniform to come make first contact just for safety reasons. And as soon as he starts to make contact, I get out, go up and help. Pull the guy out of the van. He's very, very nice. I talk to him and basically say, hey, we're just investigating something that happened. And at that point, I see some fresh broken twigs. And I say, where'd that come from? And he goes, oh, I, go, I went and tried to pull down by this one cut and names the exact area where we found the body. I'm like, are you kidding? Did you just really say, like, I didn't give up. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is, yeah. this is easy. <laughs> and I was like, Hey, do you mind going back to the station and talking to me for a while? He's like, no, that's fine. He goes, will you just get the dentures out of the truck for me or out of the van? <laughs> no problem. Get his dentures for him. 
and go to the back of the van and my unbelievable surprise they literally have the piece and they put it right where it is the exact piece that piece of the bumper oh my god um, yeah so i had to say i was sorry to that detective <laughs> <laughs> so i actually interviewed this guy for 19 hours thereabout are you allowed to interview someone that long i mean apparently so if they are knowing they can end at any time give them food right. a lot drinks Water. smoke breaks everything they want and repeatedly i told him you know we don't he didn't want to end he took an unbelievable liking to me i think he wanted to be more than friends uh. <laughs> through the interview come to find out he has a strong hatred towards women he goes into some gruesome things that i'm not going to go into very very gruesome things that he did in prison things that were done to him in prison mm. in prison he wouldn't have been dealing with women no it was men so okay and I'm not going to. That's fine. You don't have to. Yeah, because it, it is gory. It is very gory. There mm. were a lot of, I'm going to use the word toys, mm. that were found in the van that aren't normal. And some of which were what were used to kill her. Oh, God. She was strangled, but she was not killed by strangulation. She basically bled out from an, an unusual place to bleed out. Um, at the end... It kind of almost worked too well where he really, really liked me and didn't want me to think bad of him that he's one. He admitted that she was in his van, but he put a third person in there as the one that killed her. And he gave me where some of the items were that he had thrown away and that checked out for going find them. But we were missing the mattress stuff or the sheet stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm not allowed to go home until we have it. And I was hoping to spend Thanksgiving with my family. And he, goes, and he basically said, I can't let you miss Thanksgiving with your family and told me where it was. Cheers. And then, so this has gone to court now, and he he did receive the death penalty. Actually, as far as the uh, state attorneys know, it's the only time in Florida where every single juror member wanted the death penalty for him. <laughs> because but, it was so heinous? Yeah. When I show up at court, he's saying hi to me, mm. How you like just as nice as can be. When I was finished testifying and I'm walking out, he goes, I'm so sorry I put you through this. Oh my god! Yeah. So there's. What does that do to your head? Oh, it, it plays with it. <laughs> yeah, just very, very odd. Well, and that's also the guy that was the the deep undercover. I mean, obviously, don't you think you drew on that experience to interview? Oh, absolutely! Like this? It, it's exactly the the same thing. You know, in a case like this, you have to pretend that you like him, probably, right? Oh yeah. So. <laughs> It's a very creepy moment. So we prayed together because he, he talked a lot about God. At one point, um, <laughs> oh, this is so disturbing. He's he's starting to give things up and he's starting to give details. And, you know, he'd get scared. He'd get hung up for a second. Didn't want to keep talking. And one of the times I put my hand on his shoulder, like, hey, it's, it's, you know, it's all right. You've got to get this out. And he goes, I usually don't let people put their hands. It reminds me of prison. And I started to back off. He goes, no, no, I like it. Keep it there. Oh. I was like, oh, that was a very, very disturbing moment. What did you do? I kept it there. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> is that a good ending point? <laughs> well, what's going through my head is, you know, here's an instance where you got to pretend to like somebody 
even though he probably makes you sick to your stomach. And it's also going to only be for a number of hours. But when you're undercover and you have to pretend you like these people every day, all day, for years, do you at some point actually start to like them? Oh, absolutely. Both cases, I had friends. There were parts of Billy that I liked. Oddly enough, I never got as close to Billy emotionally because like, he was just so scary. Mm. Like I said, extremely charismatic, but boy, you could see the, the switch flip and he could be the most paranoid person. He, he strip searched me at times. Again, this was after we were close, but especially if he was doing cocaine, he would flip and become just over paranoid. Huh. I think, I mean, this guy had to play with your head. That kind of thing has to play with your head, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Yeah. And the serial killer, how did you know he was a serial killer? Because you're talking about one homicide. He even told me that he had killed somebody when he was younger and went to jail for that. Fortunately, at this, at this point, we still don't know other bodies. Mm. But there are tales that this can't be his only one. The brutality of this one is not something you start with. Not even mm. remotely close. Interesting. And so, you, as you said, he did get the death penalty. He did get the death penalty, yes. He has not been executed yet, but he's... Well, we need him to stay alive long enough to get the info on the other murders. He'll never... Unfortunately, he will never give it up. I'm okay. too confident on that. It was after this that you got the lung infection. So that happened. I did a, a little while in narcotics, and then a year and a half ago, so springtime... And I got COVID and then I got shingles. I had no immune system. And that's what caused I got an ear infection, eye infection. It dropped to my lungs and spent a week in the hospital. It tore apart my lungs. I had to medically retire last December. Mm. Now I've worked my butt off since then to I'm not going to let this thing beat me kind of thing. But it is what it is in terms of going back to police work. Now, having said that, up until a couple of months ago, yes, I would have gone back to the job in a heartbeat, but I've learned we all have our breaking points. You know, I've, I've had a very interesting career. Like, you know, I can honestly say that I don't know of any other officer that has even come close to doing some of the things I've done, but at the same time, I've been very foolish to think it wouldn't have an impact on me and mm. wouldn't change me. And I have realized that now that, yeah, that, you know, I've, it has taken a toll on me and I should have left law enforcement long before I did. And so I, I really want to be able to go out to other officers. And don't be foolish. You know, just 20 to 30 years in law enforcement, if you're on the street at, in a city, it's too much. Like You cannot do that. A person can't do it. And we can't be asking people to do that. That's just not right. By any means. I mean, you know, it used to be the job was 20, 30 years. And so... <laughs> And, and in some ways that's happening less because people are leaving sooner. It, the, the profession is not, at least right now, as appealing to some as it was. So, But what you're saying is, I think when we did the pre-interview, my interpretation of the lung infection was kind of like, I'll use a line from my previous interview. The officer said, I did not respect Mother Nature. I mean, it was kind of like, or the hand of God saying, Matt, you're done. <laughs> so, and that's, and that's, what, so yes, that's exactly what I say is God had tro tried to tell me to get out of law enforcement. I was hard headed and this is all I know. This is what I'm going to do. And so, you know, it's going to elevate until you're out. 
<laughs> and that's exactly what happened. As rough as it was and as scared as I was when it came crashing down like that, I'm so much better off for it now. Yeah. Hands down. How long did it take you to feel that way? Oh, wow. So that was last December. I'm going to say it was around May that I started to be able to see what the effects were. Like before police work, I trusted people so much and had a tendency to only see the good in people to now being 180 where, oh, what's that person up to kind of thing. I want to get back to not seeing the worst in everybody, not thinking the worst mm-hmm. in everybody. Like, I want to believe in mankind again. Had we done this interview, well, I wouldn't have uh, <laughs> several years ago. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't have done it. Because? Like, like I started to shake. I started to sweat. Um, I literally, I can't even get to the point where I could talk because Why? I couldn't talk about the cases. The cases um. just haunt you. And doing these podcasts has been unbelievable for me. Uh, and a lot of it is people's responses. Like, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I did that for the other podcast. You know, I went back and, and read all the comments and stuff uh, right away. <laughs> you think everybody looks at you one way, so you read these comments and they're like, oh, well, you know, thank you so much and stuff like that. It really does make a huge difference. <laughs> I comment, I, I wrote that on your Instagram. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said, I don't know how you could have done it. You know, thank you for doing it. It does. It means a lot, especially like we talked about a little bit with the first case when, you know, you you do feel like you just got stabbed in the back by your department and everything like that. You question a lot. Yeah. You were saying you want other officers to listen to their. Yeah, they've got to listen to their health. They got to listen to their body and their mind. We know when we're not when we're getting to that point that we're not dealing with. We make excuses and everything else. It's hard because if you leave after 10, 15 years, you're not getting your full retirement, which can be difficult. Plus, you know, for me, one of the things that's been hard is all I know is law enforcement. Like, I don't know how to do any other job. You were going to talk to a family member or a friend who, whose daughter wants to go into law enforcement? So, uh, yeah, we do have a family friend whose daughter is going into law enforcement. But I want to know what you would tell someone who's interested like her. Would you recommend it? that is the toughest question you've asked Um, (laughs) yes and no I if it is their calling like with her I probably would recommend it because it's all she's ever wanted so I believe if it's your calling if it's all you've ever wanted then you've got to follow your calling but you have to know what you're getting into you have to understand that you do not come out of this profession the same was it your calling yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. Not even a question in my mind about that. What made you choose it? Undercover always fascinated me. Like growing up, if you had asked me, like, I, so I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. I actually wanted to go to the Naval Academy. wasn't good enough. And I, like, I went somewhere else and played football instead. But the other thing for me was CIA, like that part of undercover. Like, so the undercover thing has always been a fascination of mine. I stopped college early like an idiot and of all things went into acting for a very brief time. <laughs> well, it seems like you made a career out of acting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then my brother had already become a cop at this point and he's telling me stories and that's when the bug just was too much. I was like, all right, put in the, I'm Charlotte, rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Well, what a journey. Yeah, <laughs> it, that it has. I can't. Yeah, I'm very proud of my career. I'll never knock it that way. 
but now I just want to, you know, use my voice to kind of hopefully help some other people. Yeah. You know, I don't want to dissuade from anyone from getting in the profession, but you know, what I'm hearing is know when it's time to go. Yeah. 100%. Like you have to, it, it's just not worth it. Well, Matt, thank you for taking most of your day to talk with me. <laughs> <laughs> not a problem. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate your commitment to the profession and to the people, to the community, to the people you helped. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. It really does. I promise. Good. Yeah. No, thank you for having me on. I really do want to thank Matt for his time today and for sharing these stories. Obviously, some of them hard to revisit. As he mentioned, he's working on a book, so there will be more from where this came. Follow him on his Instagram for updates on that. His handle is R-E-T for retired underscore D-E-T for detective underscore Matt Pitcher, one word, Pitcher like the ball player. <laughs> and I will put that in the episode notes. Also on his Instagram, you can see the photos we talked about. The one in particular is a pinned post, among other photos during his time in Deep Undercover. I want to mention that Matt will be featured in the season finale of A&E's show, Undercover, Caught on Tape, a true crime series featuring the real stories of undercover agents and detectives. His episode will air Thursday, March 14th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Having watched the series and knowing Matt's, or at least some of Matt's story, I am sure it will be fascinating. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I truly appreciate it.